If you do this exercise and take proper care, your drawing will achieve a striking resemblance to Van Gogh's. On taking a second look, however, you'll have little choice but to conclude that what separates the masters from you cannot be manual skill but is instead a way of seeing and sensing manifold possibilities, where others perceive few or none. In fact, every time you ask another person to take a second look at something, you acknowledge that, at times, all of us can look again and see the same thing in a new way, understand it differently. If you want to tell great stories, you need to learn how to apply this everyday skill to your work, to rewrite or revise m from the Latin revisier, to look at again. But don't take our word for it, just ask John Irving, who said, more than half, maybe as much as two-thirds of my life, as a writer is rewriting. Or E.B. White, I rewrite a good deal to make it clear. Or Elmore Leonard, if it sounds like writing, I rewrite it. Or Vladimir Nabokov, I have rewritten often several times, every word I have ever published. Or Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, who ruled, in a manner of speaking, there is no great writing, only great rewriting. Or Ernest Hemingway, who wrote the ending to a farewell to arms no fewer than 47 times, before he felt satisfied M- Or just gave up. The words revise and rewrite, however, indicate the need for change without specifying what change exactly. Something ellipsis points different, please. They seem to say. But what, you may ask? Is there a script for this kind of thing? Yes and no and fittingly, what script we can consult comes to us from the world of film. Experienced writers know to differentiate between a developmental edit and a capidit and we'll get to that in a later chapter, but only screenwriters routinely talk about developing their own work. When they do, they formally acknowledge one important gap confronting all writers, a profound distance between the words on the page and the underlying, or overarching, story. Screenwriters can recognize this gap more easily, because they write for production and not for readers. More a blueprint than a text, the screenplay serves as an intermediary between the dream and the film, which itself must go through the equivalent of dreaming and drafting, read, spouting and shooting, as well as development and refinement. Storytellers, novelists, and expository writers need to realize that this gap also applies to their work, early drafts of an essay or a novel in progress point toward a concluding text, but they don't, yet fully incarnate it. That's where development comes in m It's the missing link between vision and manifestation, between drafting and refinement, and, as we explored in the last chapter, between successive drafts or layers. That's where development comes in m It's the missing link between vision and manifestation. Jennifer Egan's experience with her first novel perfectly illustrates the gap between the words on the page and the story they may or may not convey, as well as the demands that gap can place on a writer. Years before she won the Pulitzer Prize, Egan told the website opening lines, she drafted a novel that everyone hated M-Dash but the original sticky idea would hold her allegiance. On picking up her manuscript again after a few years, she had a revelation. I'd so utterly missed the mark, that in a way I felt like I hadn't really touched the idea that I had wanted to deal with. It felt like I had just kind of aimed in the wrong direction and the target was still there and that made me want to give it another try. So I essentially threw left square bracket the original manuscript right square bracket out. I can't really say I rewrote it, because I didn't save a single word, but there were certain basic impulses and plot moves that really fueled the next attempt, and they were the same as the first in some ways. 
and that is what ultimately became the first novel that I published, The Invisible Circus. Egan had to be able to see that revising her manuscript meant not just rewriting it but reinventing it. Terms like revise and rewrite, as Egan's experience show, can direct the writer's attention only to what's already been written m as though the initial mass of words amounts to a mess of puzzle pieces that simply need rearranging. Development, in contrast, allows for the possibility that a draft may actually need to expand, grow, and evolve. Experienced professionals know that it's neither sufficient nor particularly productive, at this stage, to eliminate a dangling participle here, or correct a spelling error there, or quibble with oneself over synonyms. Before you move forward to the refined stage, you may need to do any or all of the following, replace weaker ideas with stronger ones, restructure your work altogether, shifting paragraphs or entire sections for greater logic and effect, incorporate flashbacks or combine characters to streamline plot, and resolve inconsistencies that threaten the coherence of your narrative. When it comes to your story, as well as yourself, not all growth need be visible. Developing a draft means making it deeper and richer without necessarily making it longer. When Ernest Hemingway developed, he pruned to make his text more concise and the stories that emerged from them more suggestive and emotionally powerful. He derived lasting faith in the power of omission in parts by reading Rudyard Kipling, who dubbed non-essential words the enemy of vigor. While Hemingway made plain that a writer who omits things because he does not know them only makes hollow places in his writing, he emphasized that you can omit anything as long as you know what you've omitted. He believed an omission could strengthen the story and make people feel something more than they understood. When you develop, it's essential that you remain focused on moving the reader and not on merely moving words around on the page. In life, our capacity to feel outpaces our ability to understand, so the meaning we seek to impart in stories often revolves around their emotional effect. That may explain why a story can inspire empathy between even those who share dramatically different life philosophies. When you develop, it's essential that you remain focused on moving the reader and not on merely moving words around on the page. When we talk about development as a concept, we talk in the abstract, but the practice itself requires specific aims. You develop, for instance, to reduce the chance that the reader will guess the identity of the murderer before the true crime novel's resolution. You develop in order to raise the stakes and ratchet up the protagonist's inner conflict in a way that makes her more compelling and sympathetic. You develop to draw on additional sources that better explain the fundamentally different worldview governing late 19th century American immigrants, whose behavior would otherwise seem irrational. In future chapters, we are going to share techniques that will help you pinpoint just which elements in your writing will benefit from development. In the meantime, for a valuable lesson in rewriting, search online or visit your local university archives and ask to see early drafts of great writers' work, then compare each draft to the published version. It's something that we all should do in school, if only to avoid the idea that the classics, or any completed work, for that matter, sprang fully formed from the brains of their creators, like the Greek goddess of wisdom, Athena, from Zeus's skull. Or, in lieu of leaving your desk, imagine a flip book that conveys the reality of development. Flip, sentences written, then unwritten, then written anew. Flip, paragraphs that jump from one page to another or vanish altogether. And you don't have to limit this exercise to text alone. Look closer, flip, a character whose hair turns red, then brown, 
then black, who grows a mustache and acquires a gold earring, who dies and then comes back to life. Who escapes with his sweetheart in a rowboat. Flip through it forward or backward and dash you'll find a different version of the story unfolding in each case. Start from anywhere in the middle, and you'll find the beginnings of a third version. Start somewhere else, and you're on the verge of a fourth. Why not a fifth? Now you're developing. Sweat Trump's talent. Experience has shown me that there are no miracles in writing. The only thing that produces good writing is hard work. M-Isaac Bash of his singer. Two beliefs about talent weigh heavily on the novice writer. First, that talent is an innate and mysterious gift that you either have or don't have and cannot develop. And second, that talent determines destiny. The dictionary seems to bolster these beliefs by declaring talent a natural aptitude or skill. In the overall spirit of the developed stage, let's adopt a more functional, dynamic definition. Talent is a set of qualities that enable us to improve faster and rise to higher levels of achievement. According to this new definition, physical qualities like strength, flexibility, stamina, coordination, balance, rhythm, speed, and timing form the foundation for athletic talent. The qualities that make up writing talent aren't as clear-cut, since they involve more intellectual and psychological traits, including literacy, how much and what you read, imagination, analytical ability, tolerance for seclusion, patience, determination, and capacity for delayed gratification. No doubt you can think of others. When you were born, you were pure potential. Since then, whether you've chosen to write, play sports, or compose music, you've had to develop talent through sweat, the ability to work toward something over time. The record books team with athletes whom no one would initially have called talented but who prevailed anyway. Polio twisted Wilma Rudolph's left leg to the extent that she required a leg brace and special treatment until age 12. Overjoyed to run and play like a normal kid, she resolved to become an athlete like her older sister. Eight years later, she overshot that goal, winning three world titles as a sprinter in the 1960 Rome Olympic Games. You've had to develop talent through sweat, the ability to work towards something over time. A lesser-known athlete, Eric Korkesen had also suffered the effects of polio. He relied on crutches and braces to support his emaciated legs, as he entered up Berkeley's gymnastics room to train for the Steel Rings event. Tall and lanky in the company of compact musclemen, he wouldn't have been mistaken for a guy with talent for the steel rings, which require a soaring dismount and a solid landing. But Corpus trained hard, crashing painfully to the mats hundreds of times, because he couldn't bend his knees. Four years later, he landed a dismount with locked knees and became the powerhouse Pacific 8 conference champion and one of the top steel rings performers in the United States. We call Rudolph and Korkesn, as well as their non-athlete counterparts, role models, because they serve as living testimony that sweat matters in ways most of us don't anticipate. Factors such as timing, circumstance, upbringing, culture of opportunity, and at least 10,000 hours of practice may contribute to success more than models like talent or genus, as Malcolm Gladwell suggests in Outliers. Even superstars rarely excel in all areas, most of us compensate for weakness in one area with strength in another. And we compensate for outright failure by refusing to quit. Most of us compensate for weakness in one area with strength in another. The same logic applies to all fields. Albert Einstein credited his discoveries in physics to curiosity and persistence. 
Fired from her first job, Oprah Winfrey rose above an abusive childhood and numerous other career setbacks. Walt Disney lost a job at the Kansas City Star because an editor said he lacked imagination and had no good ideas. And Grand Ole Opry manager Jimmy Denny reportedly fired Elvis Presley after one performance and advised, You ain't going nowhere, son. Go back to driven a truck. The high school yearbook staff rejected drawings submitted by Charles Schultz of Peanuts fame. In an essay years later, Schultz admirer Jonathan Franzen asked, Was Charles Schultz's comic genius the product of his psychic wounds? When it comes to writing, we can develop our skills and boost our talent through thoughtful practice, we can augment our knowledge and perspective by reading books across genres, actively cultivating psychological traits such as empathy and sensitivity in the process, not to mention improving vocabulary and use of grammar and punctuation. By continuing to write, we build stamina and patience, eventually exceeding our standards to the extent that we can then raise them. Perhaps most important of all, in the diligent application of our arts, we demonstrate our devotion to the work. Eric Jong observed, everyone has a talent, but rare is the courage to follow the talent to the places it leads. Caricaturist Al Hirschfeld said, I believe that everybody is creative, and everybody is talented. I just don't think that everybody is disciplined. That is the rare commodity. Without discipline, we may fail to seek out or recognize opportunity, and without opportunity, what talent we possess means little. As Thomas Edison said, most people miss opportunity, because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. Development represents the supreme act of discipline, because it not only looks like work, it is work. Development not only looks like work, it is work. Casual observers often mistake lack of experience for lack of talent. But the peers of accomplished athletes, painters, musicians, and writers know enough to recognize the perseverance that turned modest potential into high accomplishment, regardless of inauspicious beginnings. Failure in one arena may even serve as a necessary stepping stone to success in another. While no amount of effort can guarantee specific outcomes, sweat will reliably improve the odds that you'll achieve your goals, maybe even surpassing them to a degree that astonishes both you and your peers. But what about now, you may ask? Can something arise from what looks like nothing? Of course some dash that's how the universe began. Dan, the cycles and layers of learning. Character consists of what you do on the third and fourth tries. M-James Michener. Every book project brings a unique writing experience, yet more than a dozen of my works over the past few decades have followed a cycle of psychological phases as consistent as those of the moon. This eight-phase cycle describes my personal writing process, but I expect that many other writers will find one or more phases familiar. The cycle begins with what I call my pre-procrastination phase, when I know I'll be procrastinating soon but I'm not yet ready to commit. This denial phase moves seamlessly into an official procrastination period, when yard work and other projects take on an unexpected urgency. After decades of experience, I no longer feel conflicted about not writing during this initial part of the cycle. In fact, I respect and appreciate the beginning of dream time as a necessary phase of percolation and subconscious preparation. Then comes the involved phase, when I stretch, sit down at the keyboard, and start typing. In the dream stage, I'll jot down a few ideas or scene snippets, talk to myself aloud or on the page, make notes on initial research, and find relevant quotations I can use. 
Eventually, I'll make my way toward a what, if question and partial outline. This phase of the cycle typically feels as if a huge locomotive is just beginning to chug, each car coupling jarring against the next, as the wheels slowly start turning and the engine within me strains to overcome inertia and build momentum, until it finally pulls out of the station. During this phase, I still take breaks at every opportunity. Finally, ideas begin to flow, as I enter the interested phase, when I'd rather be drafting than sharpening pencils or mowing the lawn. This phase lasts for days, weeks, or months, depending on the project, until I'm ready to shift gears again. As I draft and develop, the interested phase alternates with the immersion phase of writing, as I enter a timeless zone in which the world recedes and becomes less real than the story or project. I forget about email and other business for hours that seem like minutes. This absorption becomes a feverish compulsion to keep pace with the creative flow. Uncounted pages flash by the locomotive's windows as the writing becomes a race through rising complications in the story world and in my own. Once I sight a finish line on the horizon M-the completion of a new draft M-two short and intense periods follow each other, the obsession phase, in which I skip meals, ignore family, and couldn't care less what else is happening in the world. Then, in a final mad dash, the desperation phase culminates in an adrenalized all-nighter, and my own and my protagonist's adventures reach a simultaneous climax and resolution. The cycle wouldn't be complete, however, without my mentioning one other wild card phase that intrudes at random M-the depression phase, when, for whatever reason, I begin to view my work through a dark and distorted lens. What was I thinking? I wonder. This is all crap. There are occasions when depression provokes clear-eyed reflection. Sometimes it's necessary to scrap an ill-conceived project, I've done it more than once. But other times, I've managed to rescue mediocre early drafts with more layers of rigorous development M-dash, just as long as I still believe in the original dream. I've managed to rescue mediocre early drafts with more layers of rigorous development. Thus concludes a cycle that repeats itself not only with each book project and each layer of drafting but, to a lesser degree, with nearly every writing session. Progress unfolds in layers, each of which points to the next. I relearned this lesson in the winter of 2006, on the eve of my 60th birthday, when I resolved to learn to ride a unicycle. A friend showed me the basics, after which, every morning for three weeks, alone on a double tennis court, I struggled, without any discernible progress, to stay atop that devilish wheel. In moments of dire need, I clung with one leather-clad hand to the chain-link fence surrounding the court, as I strove mightily to stay balanced and moving. The first day, it took me about an hour of starts and stops to make it all the way around the court. Every few feet, the unicycle would shoot out from under me, and I'd cling to the fence like a gecko before continuing. At the end of each practice session, I'd go for broke, pushing away from the fence, I leaned forward and, careening toward the center of the court, I counted how many pedals I could make before going down. I wasn't exactly riding yet M-dash it was more like a delayed fall. By the end of the first week, my best count was six pedals before the uni and I parted ways. During the second week, I noticed a group of women jogging past the courts each morning. One of them, presumably out of compassion, yelled, you should really quit that. And I did at the end of that day. Then I remembered a relevant quotation by psychologist and author David Kay. 
Reynolds, who said, when running up a hill, it's okay to give up, as many times, as you like M-dash as long as your feet keep moving. After another week back on the court, I managed 18 pedals, before my ride ended. By the end of the third week, something had clicked, I could now ride figure eights. From atop the unicycle, I waved to the women, as they jogged by. A small victory. Persisting through the tough parts made possible a quantum jump in progress. Learning to ride a unicycle reminded me that everything is difficult, until it becomes easy and dash or at least easier. As Ralph Waldo Emerson put it, every artist was first an amateur. Over the course of the three weeks, there were several days when everything seemed to fall apart, but, nearly always, on the day following each so-called bad day, I experienced a breakthrough. It was precisely during each apparent regression that deep learning occurred. Persisting through the tough parts made possible a quantum jump in progress. The pattern of crisis, setback, learning, and progress repeated itself in my gymnastics practice, relationships, and writing. I can say I enjoy bad days, when my writing flounders, but I've come to accept these cycles and even to rely on them. Another formative moment took place some years ago for both myself and my daughter and co-author, Sierra. When she was four years old, Sierra liked to draw, as many children do, and I gave her a book called Heidi's Horse. The book contained Heidi's childhood drawings of horses, compiled by her mother over a ten-year time span. When Heidi was two, her drawings were mostly lines and squiggles, but by her third year, they resembled stick-figure horses, some with three or five legs. When I first presented Sierra with the book, I looked over her shoulder, as she flipped it open to reveal a beautiful, shaded rendering of a horse, drawn by Heidi, when she was twelve. Sierra gazed, wide-eyed, at this image and said, I can't draw a horse like this. Well, I said, turning toward the beginning of the book, let's see how Heidi drew horses when she was your age. When Sierra saw the drawings Heidi did at age four, her eyes brightened considerably. That's just how I draw horses, she exclaimed. Flipping through page by page, Sierra seemed to grasp, all at once, the idea of layers of learning and improvement over time. I left her immersed in the book. When I looked in on her a little later, she was drawing horses. Your master metaphor. How we do anything is, how we do everything. M-Zen proverb. When you develop your work, you make the connection between what you write, and how you live, because you want the one to meaningfully evoke the other. And when you crave inspiration, you can draw upon transformative experiences that we've come to call master metaphors. At some point in your life, Perhaps more than once, you achieved something, despite the odds against it, because of a longing or determination that you can't fully explain. It might be a skill that initially seemed out of reach or a one-time accomplishment, jumping off the high diving board, delivering a speech at a school assembly, or traveling to a distant country. That experience, as distinguished by the inexplicable feeling that accompanied it, forms your master metaphor. It's a barometer of your capacity to surpass limitations, even those that seem to define your character. Every master metaphor draws universal energy from particular life circumstances. Your master metaphor is a barometer of your capacity to surpass limitations, even those that seem to define your character. Before we can tell you how to identify your own master metaphor, it's important that you fully understand metaphor itself, because it's more than a literary term m-it's the primary instrument by which story and life approach each other. 
as the Greek philosopher and teacher Aristotle says in his pioneering book on craft, Poetics, the greatest thing by far is to have a command of metaphor ellipsis points point it is the mark of genius. For to make good metaphors implies an eye for resemblances. Aristotle doesn't make a distinction between a true metaphor and a simile. The two both belong to the more general category of metaphorical or figurative language, though they have slightly different effects of dash for a good example, consider the lyrics to the 1968 song The Windmills of Your Mind. Like a clock whose hands are sweeping past the minutes of its face and the world is like an apple whirling silently in space like the circles that you find in the windmills of your mind. In these lyrics, one simile follows the next, each beginning with like ellipsis points, as they build up to the song's reigning metaphor, the windmills of your mind. It's a metaphor, because the phrase equates to otherwise unrelated objects and dash and, above all, writers and storytellers seek truth by drawing connections. In his Poetics, Aristotle also explains that he holds metaphors, and the ability to perceive them, in such high esteem, because poetry arises from two distinct causes m-man's instincts for imitation and for harmony and rhythm. Left square bracket man right square bracket is the most imitative of living creatures, and through imitation he learns his earliest lessons, and no less universal is the pleasure felt in things imitated ellipsis points. Thus the reason why many enjoy seeing a likeness is that in contemplating it they find themselves learning or inferring, and saying perhaps ah, that is he. In other words, we have to make those connections, we can describe ourselves and one another most fully only through associations and relations. When writers, artists, and innovators develop Aristotle's eye, for resemblances, we grasp the keystone to empathy in the essential unity of seemingly disparate experiences and objects, windmills, your mind, m-dash and we also gain access to this powerful tool for our own advancement, the master metaphor. Your master metaphor, above all, must bear deep meaning, for you. It won't necessarily have any relation to creativity, it could be the labors exerted in order to ride a unicycle or learn to speak Arabic, but it doesn't need to lead to something highly visible or even hugely difficult in an objective sense. Even epic trials of heroes and gods are ultimately metaphors, for the ordinary striving of men and women like ourselves. Master metaphors are smaller, individual myths that speak to each of us in the privacy of our own minds. In a memoir of his English school days, Stand Before Your God, novelist Paul Watkins describes becoming mindful of one such experience. Once I dreamed that there was a dark red river flowing just above my head. It was the river of untold stories. All I had to do was reach up and touch the river and the stories would pool like blood in my hands. I knew in my dream that it was a timeless river and easy to reach, if you knew it was there. But that was the great secret. You had to know it existed. I wrote it all down in the middle of the night, while a lightning storm burst so viciously overhead that it set off the fire alarms. As I wrote, I thought of the javelin that had sailed from my hand long ago at the Eagle House track meet and the angels that carried it up. I had the same feeling back then, that it was a strength I could use, if only I knew how. Master metaphors derive their power from our awareness of them and our willingness to trust in them. In that remembered javelin throw, Watkins finds a symbol for his own ability to tap into what he elsewhere refers to as a deep reservoir of strength, something at once within and beyond himself that also comes to orient him as a writer. For those of us who pursue it seriously, writing may give rise to an especially keen master metaphor, because it's an ongoing practice forcing us. 
to move through so much that also afflicts us in life, fear, doubt, procrastination, feelings of emptiness, self-loathing, self-censorship, and paralysis. And we learn that it's not enough to conquer any of these foes just once and dash we may have to do so every writing session. The same troubles cycle around and around again, those whirling windmills of our psyches. Yet every time you stand up from a successful writing session M-dash a period in which you've accomplished set goals M-dash you'll have that much more evidence that you can do so again. That's the gift of a master metaphor, each accomplishment builds upon the past and forms a foundation for future endeavors. Each accomplishment builds upon the past and forms a foundation for a future endeavor. To identify your master metaphor, take up a new vantage point and look upon your life, as though it were a constellation that you could behold only from afar. You may believe you've done so on previous occasions, when writing a resume or a biographical text, but these activities have more to do with how you'd like to present yourself in accordance with the standards of a particular group or society at large. Your master metaphor will represent the triumph of your own potential set against your own standards. When you search your memory, take the comparative weight of various experiences into account, not in terms of how much time they took or what position you achieved or even any sense of material reward, but as measured by their relative value to your life. In aspects of the novel E.M. Forster pins down the contrast between time and value. There seems something else in life besides time, something which may conveniently be called value, something which is measured not by minutes or hours, but by intensity, so that, when we look at our past it does not stretch back evenly but piles up into a few notable pinnacles, and when we look at the future it seems sometimes a wall, sometimes a cloud, sometimes a sun, but never a chronological chart. And that peculiar intensity, the kind that colors a steadfastness and tenacity that seem to have no cause M-dash that's the glinting blade of a windmill that declares itself from the dim landscape of your past. You'll find your master metaphor amid those moments, when you busted through the walls that Randy Posh describes in the last lecture, the brick walls are not there to keep us out, the brick walls are there to give us a chance to show how badly we want something. In the film Nurse Betty, a bartender named Ellen gives the title character new direction in life, when she shares her own master metaphor. Everybody told me not to go. But I wanted to go to Rome ever, since I saw Audrey Hepburn in Roman Holiday, and goddammit, I went ellipsis points. Rome was the best thing I ever did, because I did it. And I swear to you, it changed me. I've been to Rome, Italy. I sat every morning at the Café Sistina and had my cappuccino, and watched the pilgrims walk to Mass, and no one can ever take that away from me. As a writer seeking motivation or stamina, you may draw on your master metaphor during earlier stages, but you'll need it most when you develop, for this stage can bring deep uncertainty. At times, you won't be able to tell whether you're taking firmer hold of the dream or it's on the verge of slipping from your grasp. This timeless memory M-dash your master metaphor M-dash tells you to write on, and to carry on, as you've done before, no matter the obstacles from within and without. It tells you that you've already developed too much to stop now. That there's no end except the end. Your master metaphor won't tell you precisely where to go, but it will tell you that you'll get there. Sierra, never surrender. Fate smashes us, as though we were made of glass and never are our shards put together again. M-Abu-A-L-L-A-L-M-A-R-E. In the late summer of 2007, 
I found myself sweating in a dark, dusty, and airless room precariously perched on a crumbling staircase at the very top of a traditional house in a strange country. That country happened to be Syria. It was strange m-then m-dash, because I'd only arrived a few hours earlier. I'd come, alone, for a language barely comprehensible after a year of study, a language I had little reason to be learning besides an unfathomable longing that would illuminate my late twenties and my writing life. When I'd first studied Arabic in Chicago, it had felt meaningful in the way of a promising new beginning, only the kind that doesn't actually promise anything specific. I didn't even realize just how much Arabic mattered to me until that dark first night in Damascus, when, buoyed by the sensation of traveling, I drew absurd comfort from the conviction that I would endure real discomfort, if necessary. Why so necessary? I might easily have asked myself. I didn't know then that studying Arabic would give rise to a master metaphor, that it would lastingly expand my sense of what I might be and do. Previously, during several months in Cairo and my first plunge into the world of spoken Arabic, I'd practiced Egyptian dialect at a small, extraordinarily cheap private academy, while interning with the Associated Press. After completing journalism school, I moved to Washington, D.C., to write about higher education. Yet I found myself working my way through a stack of language textbooks in the early mornings, during my lunch breaks, and in the evenings. It made little sense, but I rarely thought it through. Occasionally I felt like Wiley Coyote in pursuit of the Roadrunner M- in leaving Cairo, I'd run right off the cliff, so when would I fall down? Over seven years and counting I've kept on running M- reading and speaking a language I chose for myself M- and I haven't fallen yet. Studying Arabic helped me keep on writing, because it showed me that you have to leave the road and run out into thin air, that there's no other way. But let's go back, before I attempted Arabic, I didn't think of myself as having any particular talent for languages. I'd forgotten far more than I remembered of four previous tongues. I'd also written thousands of pages before I moved overseas, most of them for assignments that didn't instill in me any real confidence that I might write for my own reasons and not someone else's. Arabic would teach me that certain kinds of desire can only justify themselves after the fact, if indeed they ever need to do so. In the meantime, a few months, after I briefly returned to the Middle East for that sojourn in Syria, I bought a one-way ticket to Lebanon and rented a room in its capital city, Beirut, an explosively vital seaside fantasia that famously never surrenders. Like every ancient city, it peddles contradictions. I lived in the urban equivalent of a marble maze, but a ten-minute walk down California street would find me leaning over the Cornish railing, the Mediterranean breeze stroking my face. Roaming the streets, I soon discovered that I could turn anyone M-cab drivers, waiters, street vendors, artists M-into an Arabic teacher, in much the same way that I had learned to cultivate a writing guide in every book. The world became my classroom, and ordinary life took on the luster of the extraordinary, because every experience simultaneously advanced plot, revealed character, and conveyed important information about the culture that enveloped me. The world became my classroom, and ordinary life took on the luster of the extraordinary. As Adam Gopnik has written, you breathe in your first language, you swim in your second. Arabic made it possible for me to breathe underwater, and it was a surreal experience. I taught my expatriate raised Lebanese boyfriend the Arabic letters by pinning them to construction paper cutouts of feet and pasting them to his wall. 
just keep trying no matter what, those feet seemed to say, as they made steady progress upward, and the impossible will become ordinary. Learning Arabic, living in and writing about Beirut, not to mention writing well, often felt impossible, which made it all the more satisfying, when I arrived at any real progress. Without the possibility of failure, success has little meaning, when failure becomes downright probable, even a small success comes to resemble the joyful end to a Hollywood movie, Jimmy Stewart and It's a Wonderful Life, running through the streets and gleefully exclaiming, my mouth's bleeding, to bemused passers-by. While living in Lebanon, I explored the country and read about it, and I wrote radio stories, magazine articles, and a book profiling Lebanese artists. The work set me moving back and forth between the real city and the invented one, the present and the past, my own small life and dramatic events all the more contingent on it, because I worked, as a journalist M-Dash, and because I paid attention. Months passed, then several years. I had gradually become what I call an insider-outsider, simultaneously floating inside the unfolding story of a country not my own, yet able, with some effort, to step outside of the narrative and gain insight into it, a writer's insight, not that of a political scientist. I looked back at both the United States and my own past, as though from outer space. The French poet Paul Eluard wrote, There are other worlds, and they are in this one. Some of those worlds you can reach by plane or train, others lie within. Beirut turned out to be, for me, one of those crossroads where the inner and the outer journeys meet. I'd never expected to feel entirely comfortable in Lebanon, and my lack of expectation made me perversely comfortable. That paradox led me to conclude that writing should be a struggle, that pain and pleasure are inexorably bound up with each other, and that the one must be present so the other can serve as its respite. I'd witnessed and experienced a degree of suffering before I moved overseas, but as an insider-outsider, I recognized in Beirut both the embodiment and the subversion of the suffering artist. The artist never seeks to increase her own suffering, but she won't let it blot her from creating the art that can liberate her in mind and spirit, if not in body. Because I suffered in order to learn Arabic M-Dash at the most extreme, long exposure to water pollution caused my hair to begin falling out M-Dash I knew the weight of it in my own life, and I followed that weight like a plumb line. Down and down and discovered that my own desire could be depthless, that, when it came to what really moved me, what meant the world to me, I too would not surrender. When it came to what really moved me, what meant the world to me, I too would not surrender. And one day, when I eventually sat down to write a story that no one had assigned me, something felt different. I knew it might still be impossible, that I could hardly become impervious to doubt or terror or others' judgment. But such knowledge felt far away and irrelevant. It sailed over me like the planes that had once passed through the corner of my balcony window in that rented room, where I wrote my first book. Just before I began that story, I'd gone on television to present the book, speaking in and understanding the Arabic talk show Chichat M-Dash, as an expected a milestone to me as walking on the moon. Now it seems obvious, it's the connections that matter most, not the substance of our accomplishments but rather the faith and commitment that rise up in response to desire's call. In the end, each of us can only recognize our true selves from the back, because we are finally headed in the right direction. North, south, east, west? Who knows? As long as it's away from where we started. Objective, follow the golden thread. 
we have only to follow the thread of the hero path, and ellipsis points, where we had thought to slay another we shall slay ourselves. Where we had thought to travel outward, we shall come to the center of our own existence. M-Joseph Campbell. The same golden thread that serves the developing storyteller first enabled the Athenian hero Theseus to make his way back to the mouth of the labyrinth after reaching its heart and slaying the Minotaur, a man with the head of a bull. In this myth and in any story, the golden thread defines the most immediate routes between the beginning and the end of the hero's and the writer's journeys. Ariadne, the daughter of the Athenian's enemy, King Minos, broke ranks with her father and gave Theseus the ball of thread and a sword for the oldest reason in the world, she fell in love with him. And the story ultimately made possible by that love forms a metaphor for the developed stage. It's not difficult to identify Ariadne as Theseus's muse or to recognize in the Minotaur all that threatens to distract and obstruct you from telling the story you've by now resolved to tell. In order to prevail, you must enter the labyrinth, your draft awaiting development, overcome your own minotaur with the help of the muse, and then find and follow your golden thread to an ending that mirrors and amplifies a beginning in a story that fuses your dream with the readers. We need to set our sights on higher creative goals, indicated but not yet achieved by our drafts. This ancient myth has yet more to teach us. First, it's worth noting that the killing of the Minotaur comes too early in the story to form its climax, indeed, the outcome of this combat has no meaning until Theseus successfully escapes the labyrinth by way of the golden thread. It's not enough, in other words, for us to devote ourselves wholly to surpassing obstacles M-we need to set our sights on higher creative goals, indicated but not yet achieved by our drafts. That's development. Myth enables us to talk about all these elements of storytelling in abstract terms, but when it comes to each of us, and to each story, the terms couldn't be more concrete. You find and follow a story's golden thread by reviewing your layers of text and, as necessary, other supporting documents, such as your what, if, dialogues, mind maps, and outlines m-and asking yourself, not merely is this any good? But rather does it belong to this story? And could this story endure and thrive without it? Not just the story, as a whole but each page, paragraph, and sentence must anchor a coherent series of resonant ideas that come together into one whole and that connect with the reader. The golden thread offers Theseus a single route out of the maze, and he must take that route in order to free himself. Likewise, you need to turn away from the labyrinth of infinite possibilities from which any story emerges and to speed toward that platonic ideal, the story's one true form, in which each turning point compels the one following it in an unexpected yet satisfying way. And don't confuse the golden thread with your story's bare-bones central plotline m-that collision between the protagonist's desire or will with one or more obstacles. Unique to each story, the golden thread defines not just what happens, but why it happens. For that reason, branching subplots should meaningfully support the central plot, reveal character, intensify theme and emotion, and relay information that the reader needs in order to understand the overall story, what's known as exposition. It's about making the story work on multiple, interrelated levels. As playwright Edward L.B. once put it in a master class, the difference between something that works and something that fails is m-something that fails is arbitrary, something that works is inevitable. 
Even if we can also recognize some sense of illusion in that inevitability, we nonetheless come face to face with it every time we pick up our favorite books and dash would we truly want them to play out any other way? No, not even the tragedies, as Malankundara explains in The Unbearable Lightness of Being, when he comments on the title character of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. Left square bracket human lives right square bracket are composed like music. Guided by his sense of beauty, an individual transforms a fortuitous occurrence, Beethoven's music, death under a train, into a motif, which then assumes a permanent place in the composition of the individual's life. Anna could have chosen another way to take her life. But the motif of death and the railway station, unforgettably bound to the birth of love, enticed her in her hour of despair with its dark beauty. Without realizing it, the individual composes his life according to the laws of beauty even in times of greatest distress. The Brazilian architect Oscar Niemeyer made the same point in fewer words, when he said, form follows beauty. It's that beauty toward which the golden thread always flows, the story's meaningful beauty. One important caveat, inevitability doesn't mean that authors couldn't have made different choices, it means that they fully justified the choices they did make. In preparing yourself to follow your own golden thread, you'll confront two different kinds of obstruction, your doubts and your enthusiasm. You've had plenty of time to acquaint yourself with doubt during the dream and draft stages, which makes it all the more essential that you guard against the second liability and dash a stubborn, creative greed so fittingly captured in the figure of that bullheaded man. When you develop, an impulse may seize you much like that which overwhelms the traveler packing at the last moment, you may think, why, I might need absolutely anything, and everything, during the days ahead. But your suitcase, at least, possesses a definite shape and volume, a material imitation on what it can accommodate. Your story may seem a different sort of vessel, potentially boundless. So why shouldn't you pack into it everything you've ever seen, felt, known, and loved? Isn't the purpose of story to express who you are in all your dazzling particularity? What could be more meaningful than that? Your story will capture something of who you are in dash but only if you cling to that golden thread by embracing just those ideas and descriptions, those events and characters that inevitably belong to the story. To do otherwise is to condemn yourself to wandering the labyrinth forever, mesmerized by all the possible alternative courses of action, committing to none unable or unwilling to make the choices without which there is no story. Cling to that golden thread by embracing just those ideas and descriptions that inevitably belong to the story. Your sense of a story's golden thread will enable you to make the difficult cuts that development may require. Mary Carr had already written two successful memoirs, but that didn't make developing her third, lit, any easier. I threw this book away twice, she has said, by which she means that she trashed more than 1,000 pages, at one point salvaging only about 120 pages, mere months before her publication deadline. I walked around in my bathrobe for three days and made obscene gestures at the rafters. And there are a couple of people I call at such times, sort of the way the president would push the red button. I'd call these people. So I call Don DeLillo, and DeLillo sends me a postcard that says write or die. I think I sent him one back that said write and die. It takes courage to let go of your own work, but Carr puts her faith in the story, not merely in the existing text. Eventually, she too found her golden thread, her way out of the maze of confusion and despair.
Before we conclude, let's return briefly to the story of Theseus and Ariadne, it ends happily at first. But they eventually part, and Ariadne weds Dionysus, the god of ritual madness. Like Theseus, we too must eventually say farewell to the muse. When we dream and draft, we open up like flowers in spring, but then we begin to contract around our own stories. When we develop, we accept that knowing the way will mean going that way, because it's the only way and dash, because it has to be. Allegiance to story. First I write the screenplay. Then I add in the dialogue. M-Alfred Hitchcock. In this chapter, we aim to help you approach your manuscript, as an early reader might, so that you may gain insight into how to transform it as a writer. In The Art of Fiction, John Gardner says, the writer is more servant than master of his story. Now you know it, and your labors at this stage prove it. During development, you need to remind yourself that you owe your primary allegiance to the essence of your story and that your manuscript may have deviated from it either in a material way or because it doesn't yet convey the emotional experience you intend. As you review each new layer, ask yourself, does this draft convey to readers the full story that I want to tell? It's the essential question at this stage, and answering it will require you to clearly distinguish between the movie in your mind and what's actually transmitted by the written version, even as you've already spent days, weeks, or months striving to integrate the two. Cultivate the distance you now need in order to assess what you have and haven't achieved on paper. In working to determine what kind of gap, if any, remains between your story and your manuscript, and how to close it, you can draw upon two analytical exercises and you should do so to whatever degree that they illuminate new possibilities and motivate you to keep working. In the first exercise, which we'll call a story check, you'll compare a story summary with a bare-bones plot outline. First, set aside your current draft. Write a short synopsis m-no more than one to three pages for a long-form work m-of the intrinsic story you want to tell. This synopsis should highlight major characters, important turning points, and the emotional landscape that you're working to evoke. Consult, as necessary, your what, if and earlier notes but not your manuscript. We are suggesting you create this synopsis in the develop stage, as opposed to earlier, because you're doing so with a stage-specific purpose to cultivate the distance you now need in order to assess what you have and haven't achieved on paper. Next, you'll want to work from your latest draft to create a plot outline. Any outlining you did previously served a different function altogether, it organized your thoughts and ideas, so that you might translate them into narrative. When you outline in the develop stage, you do the reverse, translating what's expressed in sentences and paragraphs into an ordered list of events that omits description and dialogue and focuses on answering one question, in each successive moment of your story, what actually happens? Put down every event, in order, from first to last. If your plot is complex, your cast of characters large, or your story nonlinear, then you may prefer a less linear and more associative model or diagram, like a mind map. Additionally, if you're more visual or tactile, you can storyboard, as screenwriters do, constructing, rather than composing, your outline from index cards or post-it notes, attaching them to a poster board or a wall, or dealing them out onto the floor of a large room, 